Section 3 of Four Science Fiction Stories by Alan E. Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bear Trap Part 3 He found a small wooden glade not far from the library, and set the copter down skillfully, his mind numbed, fighting to see through the haze to the core of incredible truth he had discovered. The great, jagged piece, so long missing, was suddenly plopped right down into the middle of the puzzle, and now it didn't fit. There were still holes, holes that obscured the picture and twisted it into a nightmarish impossibility. He snapped the phone switch, tried three numbers without any success, and finally reached the fourth. He heard Dr. Prex's sharp voice on the wire. Anything happened since I left Prex? Nothing remarkable, the doctor's voice sounded tired. Somebody tried to call Mariel on the visiphone about an hour after you had gone, and then signed off in a hurry when he saw somebody else around. I don't know who it was, but he sounded mighty agitated. The doctor's voice paused. Anything new, Tom? Plenty, growled Chander bitterly, but you'll have to read it in the newspapers. He flipped off the connection before Prex could reply. Then Chander sank back and slept the sleep of total exhaustion, hoping that a rest would make the shimmering, indefinite picture hold still long enough for him to study it. And as he drifted into troubled sleep, a greater and more pressing question wormed upward into his mind. He woke with a jolt, just as the sun was going down, and he knew then with perfect clarity what he had to do. He checked quickly to see that he had been undisturbed, and then manipulated the controls of the copter. Easing the ship into the sky toward Washington, he searched out a news report on the radio, listened with a dull feeling in the pit of his stomach as the story came through about the breakdown of the Berlin Conference, the declaration of war, the President's meeting with Congress that morning, his formal request for full wartime power, the granting of permission by a wide-eyed, frightened legislature. Shander settled back, staring dully at the ground moving below him, the wisps of evening haze rising over the darkening land. There was only one thing to do. He had to have Ingersoll's files. He knew only one way to get them. Half an hour later he was settling the ship down under cover of darkness, on the vast grounds behind the Ingersoll estate, cutting the motors to effect a quiet landing. Tramping down the ravine toward the huge house, he saw it was dark. Down by the gate he could see the security guard standing in a haze of blue cigarette smoke under the dim outlights. Cautiously he slipped across the back terrace, crossing behind the house, and jangled a bell on the side porch. Ann Ingersoll opened the door, and gasped as Sander forced his way in. Keep quiet, he hissed, slipping the door shut behind him. Then he sighed and walked through the entrance into the large front room. Tom, oh Tom, I was afraid, oh Tom. Suddenly she was in his arms sobbing, pressing her face against his shirt front. Oh, I'm so glad to see you, Tom. He disengaged her, turning from her and walking across the room. Let's turn it off, Anne, he said disgustedly. It's not very impressive. Tom, I, I wanted to tell you. I just didn't know what to do. 
I didn't believe them when they said you wouldn't be harmed. I was afraid. Oh, Tom, I wanted to tell you. Believe me. You didn't tell me, he snapped. They were nervous. They slipped up. That's the only reason I'm alive. They planned to kill me. She stared at him tearfully, shaking her head from side to side, searching for words. I, I didn't want that. He whirled, his eyes blazing. You silly fool, what do you think you're doing when you play games with a mob like this? Do you think they're going to play fair? You're no Claude, you know better than that. He leaned over her, trembling with anger. You set me up for a sucker, but the plan fell through, and now I'm running around loose, and if you thought I was dangerous before, you haven't seen anything like how dangerous I am now. You're going to tell me some things now, and you're going to tell them straight. You're going to tell me where Harry Dartmouth went with those files, where they are right now. Understand that? I want those files. Because when I have them, I'm going to do exactly what I started out to do. I'm going to write a story, the whole rotten story about your precious father and his two-faced life. I'm going to write about Dartmouth Bearing Corporation and all its funky outfits and tell them what they've done to this country and the people of this country. He paused, breathing heavily, and sank down on a chair, staring at her. I've learned things in the past 24 hours I never dreamed could be true. I should be able to believe anything, I suppose, but these things knock my stilts out from under me. This country has been had right straight down the line for a dozen years. We've been sold down the river like a pack of slaves, and now we're going to get a look at the cold, ugly truth for once. She stared at him. What do you mean about my precious father? Your precious father was at the bottom of the whole slimy mess. No, no, not Dad. She shook her head, face chalky. Harry Dartmouth, maybe, but not Dad. Listen a minute. I didn't set you up for anything. I didn't know what Dartmouth and Muriel were up to. Dad left instructions for me to contact Harry Dartmouth immediately, in case he died. He told me that, oh, a year ago. He told me that before I did anything else, I should contact Dartmouth and do as he said. So when he died, I contacted Harry and kept in contact with him. He told me you were out to burn my father, to heap garbage on him after he was dead before the people who loved him, and he said the first thing you would want would be his personal files. Tom, I didn't know you then. I knew Harry and knew that Dad trusted him, for some reason, so I believed him. But I began to realize that what he said wasn't true. I got the files, and he said to give them to you, to string you along and he'd pick them up from you before you had a chance to do any harm with them. He said he wouldn't hurt you, but I, I didn't believe him, Tom. I believed you, that you wanted to give Dad a fair shake. Shander was on his feet, his eyes blazing. So you turned them over to Dartmouth anyway? And what do you think he's done with them? Can you tell me that? Where's he gone? Has he burnt them? If not, what's he going to do with them? Her voice was weak and she looked as if she were about to faint. That's what I'm trying to tell you, she said shakily. He doesn't have them. I have them. Shander's jaw dropped. Now wait a minute, he said softly. 
You gave me the briefcase. Muriel snatched it and nearly killed me. A dummy, Tom. I didn't know who to trust, but I knew I believed you more than I believed Harry. Things happened so fast, and I was so confused. She looked straight at him. I gave you a dummy, Tom. His knees walked out from under him, then, and he sank into a chair. You've got them here, then, he said weakly. Yes, I have them here. The room was in the back of the house, a small, crowded study, with a green-shaded desk lamp. Shander dumped the contents of the briefcase onto the desk and settled down, his heart pounding in his throat. He started at the top of the pile, sifting, ripping out huge sheaves of paper, receipts, notes, journals, clippings. He hardly noticed when the girl slipped out of the room, and he was deep in study when she returned half an hour later with steaming black coffee. With a grunt of thanks he drank it, never shifting his attention from the scatter of papers, papers from the personal file of a dead man. And slowly the picture unfolded. An ugly picture, a picture of deceit, a picture full of lies, full of secret promises, a picture of scheming, of plotting, planning, influencing, coercing, cheating, propagandizing, all with one single-minded aim, with a terrible single goal. Shander read, numbly, his mind twisting in protest as the picture unfolded. David Ingersoll's control of Dartmouth Bearing Corporation and its growing horde of subsidiaries under the figurehead of his protege, Harry Dartmouth. The huge profits from the Chinese War, the relaxation of control laws, the millions of War One dollars plowed back into government bonds, in a thousand different names, all controlled by Dartmouth Bearing Corporation. And Ingersoll's own work in the diplomatic field, an incredibly, skillfully, incredibly evil channeling of power and pressure toward the inevitable goal, hidden under the cloak of peaceful respectability and popular support. The careful treaties, quietly organizing a dozen national economics, antagonizing the great nation to the east under the all-too-acceptable guise of peace through strength. Reciprocal trade agreements bitterly antagonistic to Russian economic development. The continual bickering, the skillful manipulation hidden under the powerful propaganda cloak of a hundred publications, all coursing to one ultimate, terrible goal, all with one purpose, one aim. War. War with anybody. War in the field and war on the diplomatic front. Traces even remained of the work done within the enemy nations. Bitter anti-Ingersoll propaganda from within the ranks of Russia herself, manipulated to strengthen Ingersoll in America, to build him up, to drive the nations farther apart, while presenting Ingersoll as the pathetic prince of world peace, fighting desperately to stop the ponderous wheels of the irresistible juggernaut. And in America, the constant, unremitting literary and editorial drumbeating, pressuring greater war preparation, distilling hatreds in a thousand circles, focusing them into a single channel. Tremendous propaganda pressure to build armies, to build weapons, to get the moon rocket project underway. Shandor sat back, eyes drooping, 
fighting to keep his eyes open. His mind was numb, his body trembling. A sheaf of papers in a separate folder caught his eye, production records of the Dartmouth Bearing Corporation, almost up to the date of Ingersoll's death. Shander frowned, a snag in the chain drawing his attention. He peered at the papers, vaguely puzzled. Invoices from the Chicago plant, materials for tanks and guns and shells, steel chemicals, the same for the New Jersey plant, the same with a dozen subsidiary plants, shipments of magnesium and silver wire to the rocket project in Arizona, carried through several subsidiary offices, the construction of a huge calculator for the project in Arizona, motors and materials all for Arizona. Something caught his mind, brought a frown to his large bland face, some off-key note in the monstrous symphony of production and intrigue that threw up a red flag in his mind, screamed for attention. And then he sipped the fresh coffee at his elbow and sighed, and looked up at the girl standing there, saw her hand tremble as she steadied herself against the desk, and sat down beside him. He felt great confusion, suddenly, a vast sympathy for this girl, and he wanted to take her in his arms, hold her close, protect her, somehow. She didn't know, she couldn't know about this horrible thing. She couldn't have been a party to it, a part of it. He knew the evidence said yes. She knows the whole story. She helped them. But he also knew that the evidence somehow was wrong, that somehow he still didn't have the whole picture. She looked at him, her voice trembling. You're wrong, Tom, she said. He shook his head helplessly. I'm sorry, it's horrible, I know. But I'm not wrong. This war was planned. We've been puppets on strings and one man engineered it, from the very start. Your father. Her eyes were filled with tears and she shook her head, running a tired hand across her forehead. You didn't know him, Tom. If you did, you'd know how wrong you are. He was a great man, fine man, but above all, he was a good man. Only a monster could have done what you're thinking. Dad hated war. He fought it all his life. He couldn't be the monster you think. Tom's voice was soft in the darkened room, his eyes catching the downcast face of the trembling girl, fighting to believe in a phantom and his hatred for the power that could trample a faith like that suddenly swelled up in bitter hopeless rage. It's here, on paper, it can't be denied. It's hateful, but it's here. It's what I set out to learn. It's not a lie this time. And it's the truth, and this time it's got to be told. I've written my last false story. This one is going to the people the way it is. This one's going to be the truth. He stopped staring at her. The puzzling, twisted hole in the puzzle was suddenly there, staring him in the face, falling down into place in his mind with blazing clarity. Staring, he dived into the pile of papers again, searching, frantically searching for the missing piece, something he had seen and passed over, the one single piece of the story that didn't make sense. And he found it, on the list of materials shipped to the Nevada plant. Pig iron, raw magnesium, raw copper, 
steel electron tubes, plastics from all parts of the country, all being shipped to the Dartmouth plant in Nevada, where they made only shells. At first he thought it was only a rumble in his mind, the shocking realization storming through. Then he saw Anne jump up suddenly, white-faced and race to the window, and he heard the small scream in her throat. And then the rumbling grew louder, stronger, and the house trembled. He heard the whine of jet planes screaming over the house as he joined her at the window, heard the screaming whines mingled with the rumbling thunder. And far away on the horizon, the red glare was glowing, rising, burning up to a roaring conflagration in the black night sky. Washington. Her voice was small, infinitely frightened. Yes, that's Washington. Then it really has started. She turned to him with eyes wide with horror and snuggled up to his chest like a frightened child. Oh, Tom. It's here, what we've been waiting for. What your father started could never be stopped any other way than this. The roar was louder now, rising to a whining scream as another squad of dark ships roared overhead, moving east and south, jets whistling in the night. This is what your father wanted. She was crying, great sobs shaking her shoulders. You're wrong. You're wrong. Oh, Tom, you must be wrong. His voice was low, almost inaudible in the thundering roar of the bombardment. Anne, I've got to go ahead. I've got to go tonight. To Nevada. To the Dartmouth plant there. I know I'm right, but I have to go to check something, to make sure of something. He paused, looking down at her. I'll be back, Anne. But I'm afraid of what I'll find out there. I need you behind me, especially with what I have to do. I need you. You've got to decide, are you for me or against me? She shook her head sadly and sank into a chair, gently removing his hands from her waist. I love my father, Tom, she said in a beaten voice. I can't help what he's done. I loved him. I, I can't be with you, Tom. Far below him he could see the cars jamming the roads leaving Washington. He could almost hear the noise, the screeching of brakes, the fist fights, the shouts, the bladding of horns. He moved south over open country, hoping to avoid the places where the copter might be spotted and stopped for questioning. He knew that Hart would have an alarm out for him by now, and he didn't dare risk being stopped until he reached his destination, the place where the last piece of the puzzle could be found, the answer to the question that was burning through his mind. Shells were made of steel and chemicals. The tools that made them were also made of steel, not manganese, not copper, not electron relays, nor plastic, nor liquid oxygen. Just steel. The copter relayed south and then turned west over Kentucky. Shander checked the auxiliary tanks which he had filled at the library landing field that morning. Then he turned the ship to robot controls and sank back in the seat to rest. His whole body clamored for sleep, but he knew he dare not sleep. Any slip, any contact with Army aircraft or security patrol would throw everything into the fire. For hours he sat, gazing hypnotically at the black expanse of land below, flying high over the pitch-black countryside. 
Not a light showed, not a sign of life. Bored, he flipped the radio button, located a news broadcast. The bombed area did not extend west of the Appalachians. Washington, D.C. was badly hit, as were New York and Philadelphia, and further raids were expected to originate from Siberia, coming across the Great Circle to the West Coast or the Middle West. So far the enemy appears to have lived up to its agreement in the Ingersoll Pact to outlaw use of atomic bombs, for no atomic weapons have been used so far, but the damage with blockbusters has been very heavy. All citizens are urged to maintain strictest blackout regulations and report as called upon in local work and civil defense pools as they are set up. The attack began. Shander sighed, checked his instrument readings. Far in the east, the horizon was beginning to lighten. A healthy, white-gray light. His calculations placed him over eastern Nebraska and a few moments later he nosed down cautiously and verified his location. Lincoln Air Base was a flurry of activity. The field was alive with men, like little black ants, preparing the reserve fighters and pursuits for use in a fever of urgent speed. Suddenly the copter radio bleeped and Tom threw the switch. Over. An angry voice snarled. You up there, whoever you are, where'd you leave your brains? No civilian craft are allowed in the air, and that's orders straight from Washington. Don't you know there's a war on? Now get down here, before you're shot down. Shander thought quickly. This is a federal security ship, he snapped. I'm just on reconnaissance. The voice was cautious. Security, what's your cooperation number? Shander cursed. JF-223R-864. Name is Jerry Chandler. Give it a check if you want to. He flipped the switch and accelerated for the ridge of hills that marked the Colorado border as the radio signal continued to bleep angrily. A trio of pursuit planes on the ground began warming up. Chander sighed, hoping they would check before they sent ships after him. It might at least delay them until he reached his destination. Another hour carried him to the heart of the Rockies and across the great salt fields of Utah. His fuel tanks were low, being emptied one by one as the tiny ship sped through the bright morning sky, and Tom was growing uneasy, until suddenly, far to the west and slightly to the north, he spotted the plant, nestling in the mountain foothills. It lay far below, sprawling like some sort of a giant spider across the rugged terrain. Several hundred cars spread out to the south of the plant, and he could see others speeding in from the temporary village across the ridge. Everything was quiet, orderly. He could see the shipments, crated, sitting in freight cars to the north. And then he saw the drill line running over to the right of the plant. He followed it, quickly checking a topographical map in the cockpit, and his heart started pounding. The railroad branch ran between two low peaks and curved out toward the desert. Moving over it, he saw the curve, saw it as it cut off to the left, and seemed to stop in the middle of the desert sand. Shander circled even lower, keeping one ear cocked on the radio, and settled the ship on the railroad line. And just as he cut the motors, 
he heard the shrill whine of three pursuit ships screaming in from the eastern horizon. He was out of the copter almost as soon as it had touched, throwing a jacket over his arm and racing for the place where the drill line ended. But he had seen, as he slid in for a landing, just what he had suspected from the topographical map. The drill didn't end in the middle of the desert at all. It went right on into the mountainside. The excavation was quite large, the entrance covered in camouflage neatly to give the very impression that he had gotten from the air. Under the camouflage the space was crowded, stacked with crates, boxes, materials, stacked along the walls of the tunnel. He followed the rails in, lighting his way with a small pocket flashlight when the tunnel turned a corner, cutting off the daylight. Suddenly the tunnel widened, opening out into a much wider room. He sensed, rather than saw, the immense size of the vault, smelt the odd, bitter odor in the air. With the flashlight he probed the darkness, spotting the high vaulted ceiling above him, and below him. At first he couldn't see, probing the vast excavation before him, and then, strangely, he saw, but couldn't realize what he saw. He stared for a solid minute, uncomprehending. Then, stifling a gasp, he knew what he was looking at. Lights. He had to have lights to see clearly what he couldn't believe. Frantically, he spun the flashlight, seeking a light panel, and then, fascinated, he turned the little oval of light back to the pit. And then he heard the barest whisper of sound, the faintest intake of breath, and he ducked, frozen as a blow whistled past his ear. A second blow from the side caught him solidly in the blackness, grunting, flailing out into a tangle of legs and arms, cursing, catching a foot in his face, striking up into soft, yielding flesh. And his head suddenly exploded into a million dazzling lights as he sank unconscious to the ground. It was a tiny room, completely without windows the artificial light filtering from ventilation slits near the top. Shander sat up, shaking as the chill of the room became painfully evident. A small electric heater sat in the corner beaming valiantly, but the heat hardly reached his numb toes. He stood up, shaking himself, slapping his arms against his sides to drive off the coldness, and he heard a noise through the door as soon as he had made a sound. Muted footsteps stopped outside the door, and a huge man stepped inside. He looked at Shander carefully, then closed the door behind him without locking it. I'm Baker, he rasped cheerfully. How are you feeling? Shander rubbed his head, suddenly and acutely aware of a very sore nose and a bruised rib cage. Not so hot, he muttered. How long have I been out? Long enough. The man pulled out a plug of tobacco, ripped off a chunk with his teeth. Chew? I smoke. Shander fished for cigarettes in an empty pocket. Not in here you don't, said Baker. He shrugged his huge shoulders and settled affably down on a bench near the wall. You feel like talking? Shander eyed the unlocked door and turned his eyes to the huge man. Sure, he said. What do you want to talk about? I don't want to talk about nothing, the big man replied indifferently. Thought you might, though. 
Are you the one that roughed me up? Yeah, Baker grinned. Hope I didn't hurt you much. Boss said to keep you in one piece, but we had to hurry up and take care of those army guys you brought in on your tail. That was dumb. You almost upset everything. Memory flooded back and Shander's eyes widened. Yes, they followed me all the way from Lincoln. What happened to them? Baker grinned and chomped his tobacco. They're a long way away now. Don't worry about them. Shander eyed the door uneasily. The latch hadn't caught and the door had swung open an inch or two. Where am I? he asked, inching toward the door. What, what are you planning to do to me? Baker watched him edge away. You're safe, he said. The boss'll talk to you pretty soon if you feel like it. He squinted at Tom in surprise, pointing an indolent thumb toward the door. You planning to go out or something? Tom stopped short, his face red. The big man shrugged. Go ahead. I ain't going to stop you, he grinned. Go as far as you can. Without a word, Shander threw open the door, looked out into the concrete corridor. At the end was a large, bright room. Cautiously, he started down, then suddenly let out a cry and broke into a run, his eyes wide. He reached the room, a large room, with heavy plastic windows. He ran to one of the windows, pulse pounding, and stared, a cry choking in his throat. The blackness of the cracks contrasted dimly with the inky blackness of the sky beyond. Mile upon mile of jagged, rocky crags, black rock, ageless, unaged rock. And it struck him with a jolt how easily he had been able to run, how lightning swift his movements. He stared again, and then he saw what he had seen in the pit. Standing high outside the building on a rocky flat, standing bright and silvery, like a phantom finger pointing to the inky heavens, sleek, smooth, resting on polished tail fins, like another worldly bird poised for flight. A voice behind him said, You aren't really going any place, you know. Why run? It was a soft voice, a kindly voice, cultured, not rough and biting like Baker's voice. It came from directly behind Shander and he felt his skin crawl. He had heard that voice before, many times before. Even in his dreams he had heard that voice. You see, it's pretty cold out there, and there isn't any air. You're on the moon, Mr. Shandor. He whirled, his face twisted and white. And he stared at the small figure standing at the door, a stoop-shouldered man, white hair slightly untidy, Crow's feet about his tired eyes. An old man, with eyes that carried a sparkle of youth and kindness. The eyes of David P. Ingersoll. Shander stared for a long moment, shaking his head like a man seeing a phantom. When he found words, his voice was choked, the words wretched out as if by force. You, you're alive! Yes, I'm alive. Then... Shander shook his head violently, turning to the window and back to the small white-haired man. Then your death was just a fake. The old man nodded tiredly. That's right, just a fake. Shander stumbled to a chair and sat down woodenly. I don't get it, he said dully. I just don't get it. 
the war, that, that I can see. I can see how you worked it, how you engineered it. But this, he gestured feebly at the window, at the black, impossible landscape outside. This I can't see. They're bombing us to pieces. They're bombing out Washington. Probably your home. Your own family. Last night. He stopped, frowning in confusion. No, it couldn't have been done last night. Two days ago? Well, whatever day it was, they were bombing us to pieces, and you're up here. Why? What's it going to get you? This war, this whole rotten intrigue mess, and then this? The old man walked across the room and stared for a moment at the silent ship outside. I hope I can make you understand. We had to come here. We had no choice. We couldn't do what we wanted any other way than to come here, first, before anybody else. But why here? They're building a rocket there in Arizona. They'll be up here in a few days, maybe a few weeks. Approximately 48 hours, corrected Ingersoll quietly. Within 48 hours, the Arizona rocket will be here. If the Russian rocket doesn't get here first, it doesn't make sense. It won't do you any good to be here if the Earth is blasted to bits. Why come here, and why bring me here, of all people? What do you want with me? Ingersoll smiled and sat down opposite Shander. Take it easy, he said gently. You're here, you're safe, and you're going to get the whole story. I realize that this is a bit of a jolt, but you had to be jolted. With you I think the jolt will be very beneficial, since we want you with us. That's why we brought you here. We need your help, and we need it very badly. It's as simple as that. Shandor was on his feet, his eyes blazing. No dice. This is your game, not mine. I don't want anything to do with it. But you know the game. I know plenty of the game. I followed the trail right from the start. I know the whole rotten mess. The trail led me all the way around Robin Hood's barn, but it told me things, oh, it told me plenty. It told me about you and this war. And now you want me to help you. What do you want me to do? Go down and tell the people it isn't really so bad being pounded to shreds? Should I tell them they aren't really being bombed? It's all in their minds. Shall I tell them this is a war to defend their freedoms? That it's a great crusade against the evil forces of the world? What kind of sap do you think I am? He walked to the window, his whole body trembling with anger. I followed this trail down to the end. I scraped my way down into the dirtiest, slimiest depths of the barrel, and I found you down there, and your rotten corporations, and your crowd of healers. And on the other side are three hundred million people taking the lash end of the whip on earth, helping to feed you, and you ask me to help you. Once upon a time, Ingersoll interrupted quietly, there was a fox. Shander stopped and stared at him. And the fox got caught in a trap, a big bear trap with steel jaws that clamped down on him and held him fast by the leg. He wrenched and he pulled, but he couldn't break the trap open, no matter what he did. And the fox knew that the farmer would come along almost any time to open that bear trap. And the fox knew the farmer would kill him. 
He knew that if he didn't get out of that trap, he'd be finished, sure as sin. But he was a clever fox, and he found a way to get out of the bear trap. Ingersoll's voice was low, tense, in the still room. Do you know what he did? Shander shook his head silently. It was a very simple solution, said Ingersoll. Drastic but simple. He gnawed off his leg. Another man had entered the room, a small, weasel-faced man with sallow cheeks and slick black hair. Ingersoll looked up with a smile, but Mariel waved him on and took a seat nearby. So he chewed off his leg, Shander repeated dully. I don't get it. The world is a trap, said Ingersoll, watching Shander with quiet eyes. A great big bear trap. It's been in that trap for decades, ever since the First World War. The world has come to a wall it can't climb, a trap it can't get out of, a vicious, painful, torturous trap, and the world has been struggling for seven decades to get out. It hasn't succeeded, and the time is drawing rapidly nigh for the farmer to come. Something had to be done, and done fast, before it was too late. The fox had to chew off its leg, and I had to bring the world to the brink of a major war. Shander shook his head, his mind buzzing. I don't see what you mean. We never had a chance for peace. We never had a chance to get our feet on the ground from one round to the next. No time to do anything worthwhile in the past seventy years. I don't see what you mean about a trap. Ingersoll settled back in his chair, the light catching his face in sharp profile. It's been a century of almost continuous war, he said. You've pointed out the whole trouble. We haven't had time to catch our breath, to make real peace. The First World War was a sorry affair, by our standards, almost a relic of earlier European wars. Trench fighting, poor rifles, soapbox aircraft, nothing to distinguish it from earlier wars but its scope. But twenty uneasy years went by, and another war began, a very different sort of war. This one had fast aircraft, fast mechanized forces, heavy bombing, and finally, to cap the climax, atomics. That Second World War could hold up its head as a real, strapping, fighting war in any society of wars. It was a stiff war, a terrible one. Quite a bit of progress for twenty years. But essentially, it was a war of ideologies, just as the previous one had been. A war of intolerance, of unmixable ideas. The old man paused and drew a sip of water from the canister in the corner. Somewhere, somehow, the world had missed the boat. Those wars didn't solve anything. They didn't even make a very strong pretense. They just made things worse. Somewhere, human society had gotten into the trap, a vicious cycle. It had reached the end of its progressive tether. It had no place to go, no place to expand, to great common goal. So ideologies arose to try to solve the dilemma of a basically static society, and they fought wars. They reached a point, finally, where they could destroy themselves unless they broke the vicious cycle somehow. Shander looked up, a deep frown on his face. You're trying to say that they needed a new frontier. Exactly. They desperately needed it, 
there was only one more frontier they could reach for. A frontier which once attained had no real end. He gestured toward the black landscape outside. There's the frontier, space, the one thing that could bring human wars to an end. A vast, limitless frontier which could drive men's spirits upward and outward for the rest of time. And that frontier seemed unattainable. It was blocked off by a wall, by the jaws of a trap. Oh, they tried. After the first war, the work began. The second war contributed unimaginably to the technical knowledge. But after the second war, they could go no further. Because it cost money, it required a tremendous effort on the part of the people of a great nation to do it, and they couldn't see why they should spend the money to get to space. After all, they had to work up the atomics and new weapons for the next war. It was a trap, as strong and treacherous as any the people of the world had ever encountered. The answer, of course, was obvious. Each war brought a great surge of technological development to build better weapons, to fight bigger wars. Some developments led to extremely beneficial ends, too. If it hadn't been for the Second War, a certain British biologist might still be piddling around his understaffed, underpaid laboratory, wishing he had more money, and wondering why it was that the dirty patch of mold on his petri dish seemed to keep bacteria from growing but the Second War created a sudden, frantic, urgent demand for something, anything, that would stop infection, fast. And in no time penicillin was in mass production, saving untold thousands of lives. There was no question of money. Look at the Manhattan Project. How many millions went into that? It gave us atomic power for war and for peace. For peaceful purposes, the money would have never been spent. But if it was for the sake of war... Ingersoll smiled tiredly. Sounds insane, doesn't it? But look at the record. I looked at the record way back at the end of the war with China. Other men looked at the record, too. We got together and talked. We knew that the military advantage of a rocket base on the moon could be a deciding factor in another major war. Military experts had recognized that fact back in the 1950s. Another war could give men the technological kick they needed to get them into space, possibly in time. If men got to space before they destroyed themselves, the trap would be broken, the frontier would be opened, and men could turn their energies away from destruction towards something infinitely greater and more important. With space on his hands, men could get along without wars. But if we waited for peacetime to go to space, we might never make it. It might be too late. It was a dreadful undertaking. I saw the wealth in the company I directed and controlled at the end of the Chinese War, and the idea grew strong. I saw that a huge industrial amalgamation could be undertaken and succeed. We had a weapon in our favor the most dangerous weapon ever devised, a thousand times more potent than atomics. Hitler used it with terrible success. Stalin used it. Harold Singh used it. Why couldn't Ingersoll use it? Propaganda, a terrible weapon. It could make people think the right way. It could make them think almost any way. 
It made them think of war, far from the end of the last war we started, with propaganda, with politics and money. The group grew stronger as our power became more clearly understood. Mariel handled propaganda through the newspapers and PIB and magazines, a very clever man, and Harry Dartmouth handled production. I handled the politics and diplomacy. We had but one aim in mind, to bring about a threat of major war that would drive men to space, to the moon, to a man-made satellite, somewhere or anywhere to break through the Earth's gravity to get to space. And we aimed at a controlled war. We had the power to do it. We had the money and the plants. We just had to be certain it wasn't the ultimate war. It wasn't easy to make sure that atomic weapons weren't used this time, but they will not. Both nations are too much afraid, thanks to our propaganda program. They both leaped at a chance to make a face-saving agreement, and we hoped that the war would be held off until we got to the moon, and until the Arizona rocket project could get a ship launched for the moon. The wheels we had started just moved too fast. I saw at the beginning of the Berlin conference that it would explode into war, so I decided the time for my death had arrived. I had to come here, to make sure the war doesn't go on any longer than necessary. Shander looked up at the old man, his eyes tired. I still don't see where I'm supposed to fit in. I don't see why you came here at all. Was that a wild goose chase I ran down there, learning about this? Not a wild goose chase. The important work can't start, you see, until the rocket gets here. It wouldn't do much good if the Arizona rocket got here to fight the war. It may come for war, but it must go back for peace. We built this rocket to get us here first, built it from government specifications, though they didn't know it. We had the plan to build it in, and we were able to hire technologists not to find the right answers in Arizona until we were finished. Because the whole value of the war threat depends solely and completely upon our getting here first. When the Arizona rocket gets to the moon, the war must be stopped. Only then can we start the real Operation Bear Trap. That ship, whether American or Russian, will meet with a great surprise when it reaches the moon. We haven't been spotted here. We left in darkness and solitude, and if we were seen, it was chalked off as a guided missile. We're well camouflaged, and although we don't have any sort of elaborate base, just a couple of sealed rooms, we have a ship and we have weapons. When the first ship comes up here, the control of the situation will be in our hands because when it comes, it will be sent back with the ultimatum to all nations to cease warfare or suffer the most terrible, nonpartisan bombardment the world has ever seen. A pinpoint bombardment from our ship here on the moon. There won't be too much bickering, I think. The war will stop. All eyes will turn to us. And then the big work begins. He smiled his thin face showing tired lines in the bright light. I may die before the work is done. I don't know nor care. I have no successor, nor have we any plans to perpetuate our power once the work is done. 
as soon as the people themselves will take over the work, the job is theirs, because no group can hope to ultimately control space. But first, people must be sold on space, from the bottom up. They must be forced to realize the implications of a ship on the moon. They must realize that the first ship was the hardest, that the trap is sprung. The amputation is a painful one. There wasn't any known anesthetic, but it will heal, and from here there is no further need for war. But the people must see that, understand its importance. They've got to have the whole story, in terms that they can't mistake. And that means a propagandist. You have Mariel, said Shander. He had the work, the experience. He's getting tired. He'll tell you himself his ideas are slow. He isn't on his toes any longer. He needs a new man, a helper, to take his place. When the first ship comes, his job is done. The old man smiled. I've been watching you, of course, for years. Mariel saw that you were given his job when he left PIB to edit Fighting World. He didn't think you were the man, he didn't trust you, thought you had been raised too strongly on the sort of gibberish you were writing. I thought you were the only man we could use, so we let you follow the trail and watch to see how you handled it. And when you came to the Nevada plant, we knew you were the man we had to have. Chandra scowled, looking first at Ingersoll, then at Mariel's impassive face. What about Anne? he asked. His voice was unsteady. She knew about it all the time? No, she didn't know anything about it. We were afraid she had upset things when she didn't turn my files over to Dartmouth as we told her. We were afraid you'd go ahead and write the story as you saw it then, which would have wrecked our plan completely. As it was, she was helping us sidestep the danger in the long run, but she didn't know what she was really doing. He grinned. The error was ours, of course. We simply underestimated our man. We didn't know you were that tenacious. Shander's face was haggard. Look, I... I don't know what to think. This ship in Arizona, how long, when will it come? How do you know it'll ever come? We waited until our agents here gave us a final report. The ship may be leaving at any time, but there's no doubt that it will come. If it doesn't come, one from Russia will. It won't be long. He looked at Shander closely. You'll have to decide by then, Tom. And if I don't go along with you? We could lose. It's as simple as that. Without a spokesman, the plan could fall through completely. There's only one thing you need to make your decision, Tom. Faith in men. And a sure conviction that man was made for the stars, and not for an endless circle of useless wars. Think of it, Tom. That's what your decision means. Shander walked to the window, stared out at the bleak landscape, watched the great bluish globe of Earth, hanging like a huge balloon in the black sky. He saw the myriad pinpoints of light in the blackness on all sides of it, and shook his head, trying to think. So many things to think of, so very many things. I don't know, he muttered, I just don't know. It was a long night. Ideas are cruel. They become a part of a man's brain, 
an inner part of his chemistry. They carve grooves deep in his mind which aren't easily wiped away. He knew he'd been living a lie, a bitter, hopeless, endless lie all his life. But a liar grows to believe his own lies. Even to the point of destruction, he believes them. It was so hard to see the picture, now that he had the last piece in place. A fox and a bear trap. Such a simple analogy. War was a hellish proposition. It was cruel. It was evil. It could be lost so very easily, and it seemed so completely, utterly senseless to cut off one's own leg. And then he thought, somewhere, sometime, he'd see her again. Perhaps they'd be old by then, but perhaps not. Perhaps they'd still be young, and perhaps she wouldn't know the true story yet. Perhaps he could be the first to tell her, to let her know that he had been wrong. Maybe there could be a chance to be happy, on earth sometime. They might marry, even there might be children. To be raised for what? Wars and wars and more wars. Or was there another alternative? Perhaps the stars were winking brighter. A hoarse shout rang through the quiet rooms. Ingersoll sat bolt upright, turned his bright eyes to Mariel, and looked down the passageway. And then they were crowding to the window as one of the men snapped off the lights in the room, and they were staring up at the pale bluish globe that hung in the sky, squinting, breathless. And they saw the tiny, tiny burst of brightness on one side of that globe, a tiny wisp of yellow, cutting an arc from the edge, moving farther and farther into the black circle of space around the earth, slicing like a thin scimitar, moving higher and higher, and then magically winking out, leaving a tiny, evaporating trail behind it. You saw it? whispered Mariel in the darkness. You saw it, David? Yes, I saw it. Ingersoll breathed deeply, staring into the blackness, searching for a glimmer, a glint, some faint reassurance that it had not been a mirage they had seen. And then Ingersoll felt a hand in his, Tom Shander's hand, gripping his tightly, wringing it, and when the light snapped on again, he was staring at Shandor, tears of happiness streaming from his pale, tired eyes. You saw it? he whispered. Shander nodded, his heart suddenly too large for his chest, a peace settling down on him greater than any he had ever known in his life. They're coming, he said. End of section three.